This episode features an interview with former Pakistani Defence Minister General Ghazi. I recorded this at COP25 in Madrid and am replaying it here because General Ghazi identifies with great clarity a stage process that can lead a nation or region into conflict. General Ghazi also outlines the critical role of the military as first responders when climate extremes create society-wide suffering. The question is here, what more can we learn from experts in risk that can help us build societal resilience and promote cooperation as opposed to conflict in the face of a challenging future. General Ghazi is a member of the Global Military Advisory Council on Climate Change, that's GMAC. Thanks for listening to Shaping the Future. I will be posting more in this series on preventing human chaos in the coming weeks. Please subscribe on any of the podcast channels or YouTube. You can also support this work via Patreon and do send feedback or comment on GenCC. General Ghazi, thank you very much for talking to me today. How should military leaders respond to climate change impacts as a national security threat? Well, to begin with, um, we've been dealing with traditional threats. We're looking at uh, territorial context, yeah. we're looking at sharing of uh, resources or access to resources, denial of resources. These have been all things that we've had in the background of our training and our uh, commitment to find solutions for. But what climate change has done is that it has now moved this threat away from just simple ideological or territorial context into an area where there are consequences for which military scenarios will need to be built. For instance, uh, you can have uh, you know inundations in certain areas because there is flooding that's yeah. taking place. And that has impact on the kind of operations that can be conducted. Or there is desertification that takes place in certain areas. And that needs changes in equipment, and changes in terms of tactics, and changes in terms of plans, etc. Now, military leaders, therefore, need to reassess themselves. Right now, there is not that great an understanding for them to really visualize what the impacts on their operations will be. And I think for military leaders to make a national emergency out of climate change consequences, they have to realize that they may have to contend it during their lifetime. One of the problems with policymakers is that a lot of them see in their short-term tenures and do not look at things beyond. So one of the things that I do as part of the, uh, the GMAC is that I go and lecture the younger officers. I tell them that, you know, 15 years down the line, 20 years down the line, you will be dealing with this scenario. So you better start preparing for it now. I can't tell it to somebody who is going to retire in two years or four years' time because for him the immediacy does not exist. And therefore I think uh, there is a great deal that we as military people need to do to be able to understand the linkage and then incorporate it in our planning processes. Okay. When you talk about understanding this, this means that you're doing your own research in real time and developing a, a kind of overall strategy in real time because these, these impacts are sort of escalating but they're all new but more well not new but more extreme if you like is that correct yes that's true because you know it's it's a self-learning process it has not yet become a standardized practice i think in europe 
uh, you are far ahead in terms of the the understanding of the uh, the security challenges uh, from climate change. Uh, but elsewhere, there is not that urgency yet, and therefore it is not a subject for study in military colleges or in uh, institutions or in operational uh, understandings. And therefore that is an area that I think we need to create for ourselves. Yeah. Because right now it's only those of us who are dealing with it out of pure curiosity uh, who have educated themselves on this looming threat. Yeah. You mentioned a moment ago um, regarding the difference between an ideological threat and something that's very tangible like a, a climate change impact and you have these sort of cross-border cross issues. Um, water, which you talked about in the panel, is obviously going to be on the horizon. Is there a strategy for avoiding cross-border conflicts? Yes, uh, you see, one is a realization that water is the one element on which everything else depends. So your food security depends on it, your livelihood security depends on it, your cleanliness, everything else, your forestry, all depend on water. So there is a realization that exists. Because there has been too much of water, we've been very complacent about its use. As it becomes more scarce, I think people are now getting to sit up and notice that there is a scarcity. And the scarcity means that it will have an impact on certain things. So you've seen uh, you know, the yields go down, you've seen uh, refugees uh, moving from uh, areas that have been devastated because of lack of water, you've seen socio-economic tensions as a result building up, and therefore societies are now realizing that there is greater competition that will arise because of the lack of resources, and especially water resources. Now what you can do is to set up mechanisms that are cooperative in areas from the upper riparian to the lower riparian, from the rainfall affected to the uh, flood affected to the uh, non-irrigated to the irrigated. And so a synergy needs to be created before, between different sectors of the water uh, sector. And uh, within these, we need to come up with a mechanism that will allow fair use, yeah. uh, which will allow uh, non-competitive use, uh, which will allow also optimum use, maximizing the potential from the water. Not wastage, but creating good crop patterns, getting, uh, creating good uh, habits uh, that are uh, agriculturally more modern, and that will give you the kind of yield that you want for, despite having consumed less water. It's interesting that you, you say that you know, there's a chance for cooperation instead of conflict. and. Um, that's, that's very encouraging. And does that signify that there's a, almost an involved role for the military in dealing with climate as a crisis and, instead of necessarily going off to fight wars? Yeah. Uh, you know, um, uh, the trouble is that political leaders will only understand uh, some of these threats when you give them numbers of how many people are going to be devastated by it, yeah. how many warts they are going to end up losing, or how much territory they will end up losing, uh, or it's a territory that will go waste. Yes. And therefore, that was, those are numbers that um, you know make uh, the political leaders and national leaders stand up. 
And what the military can do is to carry out the kind of research that translate these threats into tangible numbers that then wake up both the government and the civil society into understanding that we need to do something about it and therefore set up that kind of mechanism that will enable them to cooperate. And what you're talking about here is basically national security. It's just a different threat. And around the world, we see incidences where national security is, is top of, climate change is top of the agenda for national security. And yet the governments of those countries just look the other way and say, well, there's no, there's no worry here. How can citizens rest assured that the, the military has got their back even if the politicians haven't? Yeah, you, you see, one thing is that the, the people must feel that they are responsible. Now, unfortunately, in undeveloped countries or underdeveloped countries like ours, the people think that uh, this is uh, the rich uh, country's problem. It's not something that was created by us. We are very low on the emissions platform. We are very, uh, you know, agrarian and therefore non-industrialized. We haven't contributed to the problem that the world is facing. And therefore, we bear no responsibility to correct it. It is the responsibility of those rich countries. Now, it starts hitting you when it matters. Because if you are suffering from uh, extreme uh, climate events, you are being displaced by floods, or uh, you know, uh, heat is uh, creating pandemics uh, of a certain nature, and therefore you want solutions. Now in those solutions, I think the best thing for the world to do is to come forward and help in finding those solutions and transmitting those solutions to these people. And within that, it's the military that becomes in disasters the first responders. And the military contributes a great deal. I know that in Pakistan and I think in the rest of South Asia as well, the military is trained to pre-position itself for disasters. Yeah. We know that in the monsoons there's going to be flooding in certain areas, so we'll go repairing all the embankments, we'll go repairing all the bridges, we'll station troops to accept refugees, to house them, to uh, regulate them, and uh, to provide them with food and shelter, etc. Now all of that is part and parcel of something that we've gotten used to. The trouble is that climate change is now making it very erratic. So the traditional times I remember we used to, when we were uh, young officers, we simply went out in June uh, and did our work because we knew that's how the monsoon was going to uh, come around. Now you don't even know, the monsoon may not come in June, it comes in September and suddenly you have to deploy yourselves, you're employed in something else. So there is this resilience, I think, that is needed in the kind of de deployments that we need to take, the manner in which we can assist uh, people in disaster management yeah. and in rehabilitation as well. Okay. So it's almost increasing that resilience response in a way. Um, what's your, with all your experience, what's your biggest concern as we move forward from now? I think uh, my biggest concern, especially in the areas in which I live, is, uh, is water. water. Uh, is, uh, is the reduction in the flows uh, of the river Indus, on which, in my country, the people depend on, uh, through either human activities that are damming and, you know, diverting waters and uh, making the lower riparians suffer. Um, 
Now, if the intention is to make the lower riparian suffer because there are certain geopolitical or political reasons for which you want subservience or compliance, then I think it is the trigger for a, you, you know, a catastrophic uh, conflict taking place. Because at the end, um, uh, when you have no security of livelihood left, yes. then the eventual option is to go to, to, uh, to, uh, to you know, resort to arms uh, to actually retake it. And that last resort is something that I see happening in terms of uh, water threat. The second, of course, is that there is going to be a great deal of socio-economic upheavals uh, as a result of migratory patterns that will be set up, not necessarily cross boundaries, but more in boundaries. So there is going to be uh, an intra-country uh, movement uh, that will be displacing and creating pressures on certain societies because they have it there, the resources, to those people who have moved from areas in which there were no resources or where they were just deprived of them because of some climate event. And you're talking of earthquakes, you're talking of floods, and you're talking of you know just uh, simply failure of crops yes. and hunger and poverty. Uh, and as a result of it, a lot of this shift also that takes place from the, the rural areas into the urban. So urbanization is the third uh, big threat that you can look at uh, coming forward. And as more and more people pile up in a very restricted zone, then you're looking at pandemics and, you know, a large uh, kind of uh, health problems uh, occurring as a result. And then social tension that could then lead to kind of conflicts uh, that took place, uh, you know, in, in, in the past with um, uh, criminals' activities and criminal gangs trying to benefit from it uh, and therefore leading to more chaos in society. So, thank you very much. It's been really interesting to talk to you. Thank you. Great pleasure. Thanks again for listening. If you are interested to help support this series and help expand the discussion around climate topics, then please do consider backing my channel via Patreon. It will help me produce more content and you will also gain access to more expert interviews. It would be great to engage more with audiences too and understand your views on these topics.